you're up. Maybe like, I don't know, stand and stretch for a second to like give Dave a minute to readjust to the fact that service order has just gone on the fly, right? Sorry, Ricky just said God knew. And, and what he meant by that was um, Ricky was helping me take stuff out of my sermon all morning. Because you know when I walk up here with a stack of books, you're in trouble. And uh, I'm in trouble, and yes. Those parents will be coming back in just a moment here, but maybe I'll just take a minute to say uh, welcome to those who are maybe visiting. You might be new to Summit Drive, to this community. Uh, my name is Dave. I'm our lead pastor here, and it's just a joy to have you join us today. And I look forward to, if you are new, um, please don't leave without, well, I mean, you can leave if you want, but I'd love to say hi to you if we can make that happen uh, before you take off today. Yes, please grab some coffee and uh, and. Uh, some cookies, and you can just kind of see more of what's going on in our life and community after the service as well. But yeah, I guess we can begin, right? Let's just do that. Okay. <laughs> it was one of those beautiful, blue sky, chilly September mornings. It was 1998, and I was taking my first steps onto the campus of the University of Northern BC to begin a science degree there. And um, as a follower of Jesus, I had imagined that I might kind of bump up against some ideas in my studies that I, I just wasn't sure how that was going to fit with my, you know, my view of, of the world, with my currently held belief system on the one hand. But on the other hand, I was also just really excited for the opportunity to learn and study and know more about God's world. But like many things in life, the things that we're expecting sometimes are subverted, I, and I was surprised. You see, I found that within the faculty of science, from uh, chemistry, geography, biology, it, it turned out that, that many of my professors, it might have even been more than half, happened to be faithful, professing followers of Jesus. That was a surprise to me. That's not what I was expecting to find. Uh, before I met my wife, Catherine, um, her mom was my chem lab instructor. She was, she was my teacher. She oversaw all of the chem labs and loved Jesus. Um, her dad was the founding chair of geography, and I had him for an upper-level um, geography course. Uh, the evolutionary biology professor would lead worship at the Mennonite Brethren Church that I was going to. Um, perhaps the best lecturer I've ever had in, in my undergrad years, he won the lecturer of the year, He's a part of one of our sister churches up in Prince George. And uh, he, was won, he won that award for his excellence in teaching. Now, I wanted to start here because there's an often told story, or it's just kind of a part of the waters we swim in within our, within our culture that says, like, science or reason and, and faith are they're opposites, or they're at least in opposition. There's a tension between them that's not really resolvable. And so to my surprise and delight, I, I found out that there really wasn't a clash really at all. In fact, uh, more like a beautiful song where scholarship and scripture blended their voices in harmony and in praise to God, to his glory. It did, however, take me quite a long time to see how that could 
be the case. Um, it wasn't until I had studied the Bible and in its original context and, and theology, doing both my master's and, and doctorate in, in theology at, at McMaster University, Acadia University, it was only then that I was beginning to see more clearly what theologians throughout history, especially John Calvin, he called them the two books of God's revelation, the book of nature and the book of scripture. And, and throughout church history, um, Christian thinkers have said that the book of nature and the book of scripture, they speak together of God's glory. Um, Paul says in Romans 1 that the natural world actually reveals God's eternal power and his divine nature. That's brilliant, isn't it? You say, look at the world and you say, wow, this is revealing something of God's glory. And as we'll see more next week, we also need to look at things that we could never know simply by looking at the world. The scriptures reveal how they narrate how God has interacted in the real world, in history, working with a group of people. And that story comes to its climax when, when the ultimate author of scripture, capital A author, writes himself into the story, becomes one of us, comes for us to win back his, his good but broken creation and us within it. And we would never know those things apart from God revealing God's self and most perfectly revealing himself in the person of Jesus. But often our world, and, and sadly too, very oftentimes within the church, that story of there being a, a clash between faith and reason continues to be told and believed. But is it true? Uh, and more importantly, what would Jesus have us do with that question? That's the discipleship question. That's what we're really interested in here. And that's what we're going to dive into today. So if you're just joining us now, we have been, we're in part three of a series called Thinking Christianly on loving God with our minds. And the big idea of this series is, is this, that Jesus tells us why we exist. He says, you exist to love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. And if we are going to obey Jesus, if we're going to do what Jesus has asked us to do, it means engaging all of the different resources that God has given us to love him in those ways. We actually need to know stuff. We need to know stuff about reality to think well about the world if we are to love God and to love the world he made if we're to do it well. Makes sense, right? You guys are, yeah, this is exciting, right? Let's do this, okay. Uh, so each week what we've been looking at is one of the four categories of what's called the Protestant quadrilateral. Doesn't matter to know that name, but here's what you need to know is that for centuries, Christians have said, we draw on four key resources to know anything at all. Scripture has the priority in that, but also our experience of the everyday world. Uh, reason, how, how we work with, and we're going to look at that today, and tradition, how the church has thought throughout uh, the centuries. And all of these are in dialogue. We need to interpret them. They help interpret each other, and we're going to look more at that as we dive in. So today, what we're, we're focusing on, what we're shifting to really give our emphasis to is looking at this idea of reason or scholarship. And we'll see that within the Christian frame, there's, there's four main things we're going to see today. Number one, Reason is possible. Number two, reason is necessary. Three, reason is broken. And four, reason has a name. Let's pray as we begin. 
uh, our good God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, we're excited to be able to take this time to listen to what the scriptures teach and to think well about your world. And we pray that you'd give us hearts that are wide open uh, and minds that are receptive and lives that are ready to respond, not just in thinking, but in everyday living. And so we pray this uh, for your glory and for our joy. Amen. Yes, it is true that particularly in North America, we live as inheritors of this idea that faith and reason are, are somehow at odds with each other. So let's just start with some definitions. First, faith. We all operate by faith all the time. doesn't matter who you are or what worldview you hold. You are living by faith. Let me show you what, what I mean by that. The word faith in the Bible doesn't mean blind faith. It also doesn't mean, you know, believing things that we know aren't true. It means essentially trust. It's the kind of language that you would use when you're speaking about uh, a friend, like I would trust her with my life. That's faith that is operating there. In fact, we do trust people with our lives all the time. If you've had surgery, for example, you are trusting in that medical team. You're trusting in the anesthesiologist. You're trusting in the surgeon that they're qualified and that they have the experience to cut you open, do what they need to do, put you back together better than when you came in. That, my friends, is trust. That's faith. But it's warranted trust as well. Uh, warranted because you have good reason to say, yeah, I'll let you cut me open. <laughs> See, we have a rigorous process that qualifies someone to be a surgeon. Years and years of school, they had to write tests and pass them. They had to do practical examinations and pass them. They had to do a residency program. There's all kinds of checks and balances that help us to say, I can actually trust this person. I can have faith in what they're about to do. I, I saw a photo of a coffee cup. This is like a meme this week. A coffee cup that read, uh, don't confuse your Google search with my theology degree. And it was cheeky, yes, but also true. And I'm sure that there's similar cups that substitute theology degree for medical degree or something like that. Um, I hear from medical doctors that are friends that I know, and they say their biggest challenge they currently face is Google is that people will Google search something and think that their opinion is equivalent to someone who's done 12 years of education and had like decades perhaps of seeing thousands and thousands of different examples. And yes, of course, even authorities on a subject make mistakes. Of course, sometimes we need second opinions. Of course we do. But the point is taken, right? There's warrants for the trust that we would have. Uh, the reason why you sat down in the chair today is that you could see it was made of metal and other hard materials. It wasn't made of cardboard. Uh, you had experience of sitting down, maybe even in these very chairs today, and so you didn't have to think about it, but you did have warrants to sit there. Again, you drove a car, probably, or, or rode in a bus, or there was some mode of transportation, and every time you step in the vehicle and you hit highway speeds, you are trusting in the engineers and builders of that vehicle that it's not going to blow apart as soon as you hit 100 kilometers an hour. That is trust. All of you are operating in faith every day, all the time, no exceptions. You have to. You can't live in the world without operating in faith. So when I say faith, when the Bible speaks of faith, it doesn't mean blind trust. 
It means warranted trust. And Jesus doesn't ask you to trust him without reason either, by the way. Okay, but what do we mean when we say reason? So that's trust, that's faith. Uh, Thomas Morris helpfully defines reason like this. He says, human reason is just the power we have to organize and interpret our sense experience. So the things that we see, touch, smell, uh, or sense in any way, as well as the power to draw conclusions that move beyond the, con the confines of immediate experience. So, so reason, he's saying, that's the God-given ability to think, to comprehend, to evaluate, to decide about what we experience, and then to make inferences as well about how things might work in the future or in different situations. Uh, Morris continues, he says, sometimes we talk of reason as if it were a separate like organ or way of understanding truth or discovering truth. It's better thought of as a cluster of skills and abilities. Abilities to work with and process what we're given as we make contact with the world out, uh, outside world and reflect on ourselves. So reason, he's saying, it's, it's not this sort of like cold-eyed, quote-unquote, objective appraisal of the other sitting on the judgment seat of the world. No, reason is our ability to make sense of the world around us in an orderly way. It includes logic and rationality. It's thinking about how things correspond to the other, and it's using all of the good tools of scholarship. See, when we understand faith as warranted trust and reason as the skills and ability to process what we make contact with in the world, these actually belong to each other. You need reason. You need warrants to properly have faith. See, if I offered you a million dollars right now to believe that you are sitting on a mountaintop in Peru, could you do it? Some of you are going to try. You'll be like, for a million bucks, I would give it a shot. Guess what? Try as hard as you want. You will not be able to actually believe that you're sitting on a mountaintop in Peru. What if I doubled it? Two million bucks right now. If you could actually believe it. See, the thing is that you, ca you can't because all of the evidence suggests otherwise. Right? So as much as you would want to believe it, you can't. You can't actually believe it unless you have reason to. So, so faith itself requires warrants. And you have to operate with faith to do many of the things that haven't been proved in order to just like get on and do research in the world as well. Philosophers of science, people like Michael Polanyi in, in particular, he will tell you that every scientific endeavor is based on a tradition. It's based on a story that forms the questions that you will, t that you will ask and, and look into. And so there's, there's a basis out of which you work. So you have to operate in faith even to do the work of scholarship or inquiry. So let's take a, a closer look now, uh, specifically at what, what God says through the scriptures about this relationship of science or reason and faith. First, reason is possible. Open with me if you have your Bibles to the very first page, the very opening uh, verses. I'm going to read the first five verses from Genesis. It's up on the screen as well, I believe. It says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and void, or formless and empty. 
Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Now, that fact of God separating light from darkness, and as the rest of the passage goes on, the waters above from the waters below, the dry land from the the waters of the seas, he is bringing form to what was formless, and he will fill what was void. There's a very specific structure to this passage. We'll talk more about it next week a a bit as well. But what we have to see here is that God is bringing order out of chaos. The word seas, that, that dark or the deep, um, was understood in Hebrew thinking as the place of chaos. And it says that God is actually there where the chaos is, and he's bringing order out of it. And so here's what David Atkinson, he writes in his brilliant commentary on Genesis, these words. He says, indeed, the whole enterprise of science rests precisely on the assumption of an ordered world in which patterns can be discovered and categories established. There would be no science at all without an ordered universe. So the book of Genesis tells us that God gives order to the world, and without that ordering, natural sciences would be impossible. Because you could never be sure that the experiment that you did today could be repeated tomorrow, and that you could trust in the results of that. So, so the Christian, the, the biblical view says that reason is, is possible, but more. It actually tells us reason is necessary. Um, we're just going to go skim down the page a little bit farther to Genesis 1, 26 to 28. And here's what we read. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. We as humanity, have been given a task, a royal task, you might say, that we are to rule alongside of God. We are to be his representatives uh, to the rest of the world to care for what he has made. In the next scene, we see that God takes this man that he's created and and he places him in a garden. And what does he do there? Well, he's working in the area of agriculture and horticulture. It says in Genesis 2, 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and care for it. And then we also see that Adam is given the task of of naming the animals. That's the scientific work we call taxonomy. You see, without reason, we cannot do the things which God himself has made us to do and called us to do. To, To cultivate the earth, to create spaces for human flourishing, and so love God with our minds as well as our heart, our soul, and strength. So reason's possible and it's necessary, but not, it, it, this is important to say, it's only one of the ways of knowing. Now, one approach, sometimes it's called rationalism, 
It basically says that reason is the only way to really know something, anything. That it trumps all other ways of knowing. But Christians say, no, no, it's more nuanced than that. It's more interesting than that. For example, Blaise Pascal, brilliant French uh, mathematician, uh, Christian thinker in the 17th century, he said this. He said, the heart has reason, which reason doesn't know at all. And what he meant is this, that, that heart, like that part of us that connects uh, with our sense experience, it's like we know things because of our encounters with God that you can't test rationally. They're not going to go through a scientific experiment. We know things that can't be taught through experience. When you lose a loved one, you, you experience something that no amount of someone telling you what it's like could ever educate you in. It's something only your heart knows, Right? Grief is something, if you're not experiencing it, you don't, know what it's, you don't know what it's like. You can never say you know what it's like. So the Christian view says reason matters, but it says it's only one of the ways of knowing things. I like the way John Stackhouse puts it. He says the Christian view of human reason strikes a balance between expecting too much and expecting too little from human rationality. The Bible's repeated affirmation that the world, let alone God, is too complex for our final comprehension, cautions us against epistemological hubris. Now, epistemology, we learned in session one, just means thinking about thinking. It's the study of how we know what we know. And hubris is like arrogance. So he basically says, the Bible tells us that the world and God are too complex for us to fully comprehend them. So that cautions us against arrogantly thinking we're going to know it all about the world or about God. I remember sitting down in one of my first upper-level biology lab. It was, it was in the lab, but it was the professor who was teaching that lab. And the professor, we sat down, and one of the first things he said, I remember it so clearly, was this. He said, we know maybe 10% of the sea life that's in the ocean. Maybe. And I went, oh, wow, okay, oh, I, I, I kind of get it now. I was beginning to see that well, a, Christ, a Christian view, and not just a Christian view, but scientists don't walk around thinking they know it all, actually. They walk around thinking, oh my goodness, we know so little. And I can't believe how arrogant people are who think they know so much, but don't know anything about science. That's what scientists walk around thinking about. <laughs> Okay, so there's this vastness of the world that, that, that helped me realize just like, oh, wow, there's a big job to be done in terms of learning about the natural world. Now, as we jump into this, I, there's just three take-home points from this so far that I want us to look at. One, all, all truth is God's truth. Two, the scientific method relies on actually being challenged and overturned. And three, science only deals with the natural world, nothing else. So first, it is good to have a measured sense of confidence in the scientific method. That process of uh, developing hypotheses, creating a detailed plan for study, doing the experiments, and then subjecting all of that to rigorous peer review. That process has served humanity well. It has served you well and your family well. It has served you through medical science and through engineering your cars and the building materials for your home. It served you in education. It served you in counseling. And all of the hard, scientists, uh, hard sciences 
they were necessary for those applied sciences to build on. So the methodologies of sciences, it should always sharpen our understanding of the world. Now, I, I've actually heard an objection that sometimes comes like this, or at least it's something that's important for Christians to wrestle with. And, and it goes like this, well, what about those scholars who, who aren't Christians? Like, how do we value research and writing and, and science? How do we trust the conclusions of people who are maybe not so sanctified? Okay, interesting way to put it, but, I, but we hear that. And, and the Bible speaks of something that's so key to understand. It's called common grace. That's how theologians have termed it. Now, now common grace is basically how God gifts humanity, all of it, uh, in general. Um, Tim Keller, I think, says it really well. He says, the doctrine of common grace is the teaching that God bestows gifts of wisdom, moral insight, goodness, and beauty across humanity, regardless of race or religious belief. James 1.17 says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights. That is, God ultimately enabling every act of goodness, wisdom, justice, and beauty, no matter who does it. Um, said another way, it's often said, all truth is God's truth. Like there's nothing that uh, a scientist or uh, somebody who is maybe working in the arts is going to discover or say that's true and beautiful that is a surprise to God. It might be a surprise to us, but it never surprised God because God knows all truth all the time. He does. That's a part of his nature. In fact, when Paul quotes two Greek philosophers, poets, in his sermon in Acts 17, basically he's saying that each of these poets, philosophers, they, they're, they're holding on to a corner of the truth. They really are. And he says there's more that they need to know, of course, but, but he can quote them in confidence because they are holding on to something true. And he then shows how it's connected to the much bigger story of God's work. So again, when a, when a scientist discovers something wonderful about the world or the human mind, it shouldn't surprise us. It, it's, or pardon me, it may surprise us, but it is not a surprise to God. And if it's true, I want to know it. If, if something I read in a secular parenting book is true and good and helpful, you know, I've run it through the grid of thinking about it through scripture and tradition and experience, and I say, well, that's a really good thing. Man, I want to know it, and I want to make good use of it. Common grace, then, means being wide open to the best scholarship. It's receiving it as a gift, even when it comes from non-Christian sources. Of course, we, we have to evaluate. Of course we do. We consider it in relation to scripture and experience and tradition as well. But we recognize the good gift of good scholarship as something God has given us. So we praise God for it. Now, just a little uh, encouragement for university students here. Um, you may have this sense, if you're studying university and you're kind of stepping on campus for the first time, you might have a sense of feeling out of place somehow because of your faith in God. But you need to know something about the history of the university. Um, these were developed, the, the modern university as you understand it, was developed out of the Christian tradition. People were saying God can be known and God must be loved and so we need to study the world and, that, and get down to investigating it. That's where the modern university comes from. In the earliest ones in Europe, we're talking 11th century, 12th century, this is in, in France first, then in, then in England. Theology was considered the queen of the sciences. 
because it was recognized that, that all, all that exists, God is the source and the ground of it. And therefore, anything we discover is discovering more knowledge about God or God's glory. Nearly all of the old schools, they will still have theology departments. So the study of the world, the sciences, law, art, literature, music, these come out of a rich Christian tradition. Uh, my wife and I studied at, did our grad studies at McMaster University, and the crest from the school still reads, to Panta and Christi Sunesken, which is a quote from Paul, from Colossians 1, verse 17. In Christ, all things hold together. So far from feeling that you are out of place in the university, you are actually standing at the very center of a great Christian tradition when you step on campus. Whether others recognize it or not, you need to. Now here's the second thing we need to see. You know what disagrees with science? More science. That's how the whole thing works, actually. Um, that's the point of the process. Previously held scientific knowledge is continually being challenged and sometimes overturned by new research. You don't win a Nobel Prize in science by just saying what others have said. You show people that they've actually been wrong for centuries or decades at least, and then you overturn it with more science. That's how the process works. And so that means we should also not be overly confident in scientific findings at times. To function in the world, we will have to trust the best of current science. And this is important to say, to give most credence to ideas that find consensus in the world of peer review. That's part of the methodology. That, that's what the checks and balances come in. But even so, we should not see whatever the scientific findings as is necessarily ultimate or finished. And that's what I love about science. Here's the third thing. Though reason includes thinking logically and carefully about all areas of the world, and that includes actually biblical studies, it includes theology, and more on that next week, we know that science only deals with the material world, with the natural world and natural processes. This is super important to understand. The field of science, um, be that natural sciences or even some of the social sciences, things like sociology, anthropology, wings of, of psychology, these cannot make claims about anything except the natural world, things that can be measured and tested. So, for example, if you're studying sciences, even in high school, and it seems like your teacher isn't making any room at all for God's intervention into the creation process, don't be fussed by that. I remember I walked up to my grade 11 bio teacher after uh, one of our classes, and I just said, well, okay, like I get what we're talking about here, but where does God come into this picture? And he just said, you know, that's a great question. He was very kind to me. But he, he said wisely, the sciences can't make any claims about God. That's not their job. That's not what they're doing. They're only looking narrowly at the natural world, nothing else. So if you can't measure it, you can't, it's, it's not even a part of science. And that was actually very, very helpful for me. So this means that anytime we talk about, so it also means this. If you hear a scientist say the science says something, something, something about God, or about the supernatural world, they've stepped outside the bounds of science now. They're, they're doing metaphysics. They're not doing physics anymore. They're doing supernatural discussions that has nothing to do with science. So you, you can't 
go and say the science says something and then speak about God. You can't do that. That's just outside the realm of what it does. Uh, and that means that scientific discoveries can never prove the existence of God or disprove the existence of God. It's simply not their job. It's outside of the scope of what sciences do. Even miracles, you could never scientifically prove a miracle. Because by definition, a miracle is outside of the natural realm. It's a supernatural move of God. You can look at evidence for it, absolutely, and we should, and be blown away by it, absolutely. But you could never say, because that science proves or disproves miracles. Science just has to say that's outside of the realm of what we do. Sorry. Here's what we can do, though. We can take what we learn from the sciences, all of them, be very clear that we're no longer doing science, and then begin to make logical, reasonable arguments regarding God with that information. So, for example, Francis Collins, um, he is a, a, a leading scientist. He was the, the lead scholar on the Human Genome Project, mapping out the whole of the human genome. Uh, he came to faith as an adult, as he worked through kind of the like questions, and he has a whole book that's called Belief, Readings on the Reasons for Faith. And so what he'll do is he'll draw on evidence from science, and actually he, it's an edited work, he pulls in lots of different scholars, and says, hey, this evidence from these areas really suggests, if you think about it, that the God hypothesis is the best one. So we definitely can do that. Another author you know that I love, um, but Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God, draws on reason. That's kind of like you can think about God. You can make good arguments that line up with the best of what we know in the world. And so I would recommend both of those books. And so maybe, maybe you're here and you're like exploring Christian faith, or you're watching online and you're like, I, I'm trying to figure this stuff out. Uh, or maybe you're a Christian person, but you've been really wrestling. Um, you, you maybe heard that term like deconstructing faith. If that's a place you find yourself in, I'd love to talk with you more. Or one of our pastoral staff would, and I've got some great recommendations of things that you can look in that are using your logic and reason to think well about God and his world. That, perhaps the biggest question this leads to is like, what do we do when we see this like lack of harmony between reason or science and, and faith, like what we read in the scriptures? Like, does one trump the other? couple comments. When we're reading the book of nature and of scripture, we have to recognize that there is no information that we don't have to process with our minds. And that process is called interpretation. You're going to be reading whatever you're looking at through the grid of what you bring intellectually and from your prior experience to those questions. There is no way around the process of interpretation. There just isn't. And so for a lot of people, the questions may be like the origin of the origin question or issues. We've been reading from Genesis today. That'll, you know, we're going to look at that next week a little bit more. But when we, when we dig into these questions, we, I, here's what I would say. Patience is a fruit of the Spirit. Patience is the first word about love. And we need patience in our thinking too. Like when we see attention... Maybe we just need more information, either in our understanding of the book of nature or the book of Scripture. Maybe the Bible doesn't teach what we thought it was teaching, 
Or maybe the ideas and sciences that we're rubbing up against, maybe those are going to be overturned by more science in a decade from now. So this is where I'd say there's a call for humility and patience. And I think in the end, because God is the author of both books, in the end, it'll all shake down and say, ah, where we saw tensions, we, we, we recognize actually it was harmony all along, but we just couldn't see it from our limited view at the time. So patience, that's one of the first things, and we'll talk more about interpretation next week. So, so far, reason is possible, it's necessary, but here's the next thing that's really important to see as well. From the Christian view, we would say reason is broken. Genesis 3, if you flip just the next page over and we're reading, we, we read of what's often called the fall of humanity. And we've lived with the effects. We've lived in the shadow of this from that time until now. We too have believed, like the first people did in that scene, that we have the maturity to live apart from God, that we can actually make decisions about our own lives, our own hearts, and how to be happy apart from God. But that whole pattern of living with the self at the center, it impacts every part of us, every relationship, and even, yes, our minds, our thinking. Theologians call this the noetic fall. Nous is the word for mind in Greek, and so it's like the fall of our minds, that there's no part of of us that hasn't in some ways been affected by sin. And so we have to be, like, recognize that fact. That's a part of what we live with. So think about it. If every person is living as though I am at the center of my own universe, I will want to see only the things that I want to be the case. And and we're going to struggle to change our minds even sometimes in the face of really good evidence, because it goes against the grain of what my heart really wants, right? The post-truth phenomenon. It's not just bad thinking. It is that, but it's more. It's actually just coming out and saying, we actually don't care about facts and data. All we care about is getting our way. But for Christian people, those who've come to Jesus for forgiveness and new life because of what he done on the cross for us, and through his resurrection, we find that we really can have new life. Christian people care about truthfulness. We care about what corresponds with reality. God tells us over and over again through the scriptures to put aside falsehood. And we particularly need to be aware of that impulse toward falsehood in our own hearts, where we might want to ignore good, reasonable information because we don't like it, because it doesn't fit the truth that works best for me. So reason, it's, it's possible, it's necessary, it's, it's broken, but what does that mean for us? Here's just a take-home on the broken piece. As a Christian resource, it requires us to be humble and self-critical. Humble because we know that we don't know it all. <laughs> And humble, well, that's necessary to learn anything new. It means that we're we're willing to be corrected, to add new knowledge to what we thought we already knew. And humble because the Christian faith says that the pull to live in a self-centered way, it's still present in us, it's still with us, even after we've come to faith in Christ. It just is. And so, too, self-critical. That means being able to ask ourselves questions like this. Do I just want this to be true? Am I ignoring the best information available? Am I willing to change my mind? 
of all people, Christians should be the ones who are willing to change our minds. When better data becomes available, the word for repentance, metanoos, or metanoia in Greek, is two words. Meta means to change, like metamorphosis, change shape, change form. Meta, nous, Greek word for mind. To repent is to change your mind. And so change the direction of where your life is going. Of all people, Christians should be ones who are, who are constantly ready to change our minds when better data becomes available. Uh, my doctoral supervisor, he said to me more than a few times, the only way to know if you have a mind is to change it every now and again. And, and that brings up the problem of social media. See, it uses the logarithms to put you in contact only with information that's kind of like in line with what you've already been searching, right? So you need to be aware of that. You might think, oh, everybody thinks what I'm thinking. Look at all these news stories coming in. All those news stories, you created that as a whole cluster of things to think about. You need to get out and make more friends, I think, if, if you think everyone thinks like you on certain issues. It's good to turn it off and just to talk to some people, especially people who are different than you. And so here's one of the things that I think we can do. We can just we can tell ourselves, tell our families, tell our friends, I reserve the right to be wrong and then to change my mind. There is such freedom in knowing that you don't know it all and not pretending you do. To be like, I reserve the right to change my mind when better information comes along. Somebody says something at a dinner table, you react to it in this way, you go, actually, you know what? I was wrong to do that. I was wrong to think that. That's a normal part of Christian living. Being wrong, saying it, changing your mind. Maybe you need to apologize sometimes too. Like, you know what? I was wrong when I really confidently asserted those things, which I really don't know with that much confidence. And now I know it. Coming to humility is what we find when we come to the one in whom all wisdom is found. This is the last point as, as we close. And the worship team is going to come in just a minute here. There's this word logos in, in Greek. And it means something like, it's actually got a lot of definitions, but reason or the reason for life, it's usually translated, we often translate it word in English. It, it was understood by philosophers, Greek philosophers, as being like the unifying principle of all that exists. The wisdom underneath which holds it all together. But by the first century, by the time that Jesus came, a lot of those Greek philosophers were doubting that you could ever find that reason for life, that unifying principle, that underneath it all wisdom. And in the middle of that, we read these words from the beginning of John's gospel. In the beginning was the logos, the word. And the logos was with God. And the logos was God. And then we find out the identity of that logos, the reason for life in verse 14. It says, and the logos became flesh and dwelt among us. The reason, the reason for life at all, the word is Jesus. God himself come in the flesh. God, the ultimate source of all wisdom and truth. The one who Paul says, in him all things hold together, he showed up. And he reveals himself to us. Here's what this means. 
well, number one, all things is a lot of things. We're told that Jesus, the creator of all, holds all things together. Again, all truth is God's truth. And we can trust in the one who knows it all and stands at the source of it all. Even if we don't know it all, we trust the one who does. Man, that's, that's a huge comfort, isn't it? What a relief. Because God's revelation is not only through the book of nature or the book of scripture, and we need both of them. God's ultimate revelation is through a person, through Jesus who comes to us. And here's what this means. The way that we truly live in line with the truth. To live truthfully, it comes by following this one, the one who came to give his life for you. When we do that, when we line up behind him and we live as he's called us to, we begin to make decisions based out of his way of being. And we find that we are most in tune with the light, way life is designed to be. Jesus, who comes to us in love, now says to all of us, all of you, maybe you've never actually been here before, but he says, come to me. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened. Maybe you're burdened by living in a world that is broken. A, a world where there's a lot of falsehood. A world where it's really confusing to live in. And he says, come to me, all you who are wearied by that. Come to me, all who are burdened, who are weighed down, yes, by your own sin and by your own folly. Come to me who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me. Learn from me. Learn from me, Jesus says. We've got things to learn. Start there. Learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The one who is the Logos, reason himself, says, come to me. I'll teach you how to live. Let's pray. Lord God, we confess that it is very easy to either live as though we don't need reason or to become maybe really cynical toward even the idea that we could come to know the truth. And yet, Jesus, you are the truth who has come to us, who is the way, the truth, and the life, the one who leads us to know God and enables us to know everything we need to know to do the things you've called us to do. So God, I wanna, I wanna pray for those who've come weary today. Maybe there's a lot of things going on in their lives that have wearied them. And I wanna ask God that as they come to you, they truly would experience that rest. I wanna pray those, for those who've come with heavy burdens, whether it's grief or loss, or the heavy burden of maybe just a situation that they're in right now that's really challenging. I want to pray, Father, that they would learn from you, the one who is gentle and humble in heart. And Lord, we trust in you even when we don't know the answers because you are the one who is the answer ultimately. And so we ask, God, that you would meet us and help us to love you with all of ourselves, our minds included, this week. Amen.